you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, tonight we continue our study in Paul's letter to a young minister, and we're at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. As we'll read in just a moment, at verse 6 he speaks of being a good servant of Jesus. That really is the theme of the whole section from verse 6 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 16. This is a very personal word to Timothy as a minister, and it's a public word about the work of a minister. So Paul is talking in some ways more to me than to you. Usually I come preaching to you, about you. Today you get to listen to me preaching about me, about my work. And you're free to say, amen, preach it, brother, when you hear what I'm supposed to be doing. Let me invite you to give attention to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. What is a good or excellent ministry? This is the word of God. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father in heaven, we do pray. I ask that you, in much human weakness, would do good things by your powerful spirit through your holy word uh, to all of us tonight. Help me to hear And give us all ears to hear. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I don't want to throw you off too quickly. Since Paul is talking to Timothy about being a minister, why should you bother really at all even paying attention to this sermon? I mean, why not just take the night off? Well, four reasons you shouldn't do so. At least four. One, because if this is your church home and you, for... Uh, good, (laughs) for blessing, or for not, if you listen to me every week, uh, you ought to understand what I ought to be doing. (laughs) What he says here is standard stuff for ministers. And I know in my own heart how I fall short of what he calls me to, uh, but we all ought to know what I'm supposed to do. So that with both God's grace and your prayers, your encouragement, and your admonishment, I could be a better and more faithful minister. That's one reason to listen to this passage with 
with me. But second, because uh, for, for some of you in the next couple or five or ten years, you're going to be gone from here having grown up and moved away or otherwise relocated in a, in a, in a transitory uh, community. And we ought to know what to expect and what God expects of a gospel minister and therefore what we should look for in any new church we might eventually go to. We ought to pay attention to these things. Thirdly, it may be that God will call some of you into vocational full-time Christian ministry. You ought to know what you're called to. And fourthly, because ministry is about taking responsibility, not only for yourself, but for the spiritual well-being of others. And most every Christian needs to learn how to do that, and especially, at least at first, at home, where husbands and wives take responsibility for one another, and parents take responsibility for their children. We are all called upon, at some level, to know. How should we give good spiritual care to others? And what does that look like? So, for those reasons and more, certainly, Paul wants us to think this through. He wants a minister to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Not a bad servant, not a mediocre servant, and certainly not a false teacher, as he's spoken of uh, along the way here. So, if you are a good servant of Jesus... What will that look like? Well, it will, it will look like you will teach, you will train, and you will toil. Let me highlight those three things. Uh, you will teach sound, healthy doctrine. That's verses 6 and 7. Then you will train yourself for godliness. That's verses 7 and 8. And finally, at verses 9 and 10, he speaks of toiling. You will toil waiting on God to save others. So let me think about those three things with you. In the first place, what does it mean to be a good minister, a good servant of Christ? You will teach. Verses 6 and 7. If you're a good servant, you'll teach healthy, life-giving doctrine. Notice how he puts it in the text. If you, Timothy, if you put these things Before the brothers and sisters, before the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Like a waiter uh, who brings out a meal and sets it under the nose uh, and and mouth and eyes of uh, the people at a table, serving them nutritious and delicious Food that's good for them. So that is what Timothy is to do as he sets these things, these good things, before the people of God. My uh, oldest sister, when she was an infant, uh, was taken to the doctor by very alarmed parents, my parents. It seems her nose had turned yellow-orange. Why? Well, because at the previous doctor's appointment, the doctor told my mom to feed my sister carrots. Mom, being a first-time mother and very inexperienced, thought he meant that that was all that she should feed my sister. And pretty soon, uh, the beta carotene or whatever it is in carrots, uh, it literally colored her nose. It's not harmful, but that's what it did. It illustrates simply this point, that you are, in a sense, what you 
eat. It expresses itself in your body for good or for ill. What you eat can make you grow strong, healthy, vigorous, or it can make you grow weak and sick and sluggish. Good pastors, Paul is saying, good teachers, good ministers, are themselves to be nourished on sound biblical teaching. They're to bite down on uh, the meat of God's word. They're to drink its honey and its milk. And as they feast on it, they are to then turn around and let others feast too. So that if it's true for ministers, they're to do this, so it's true for members. If it's true for shepherds, it's true for the sheep. If it's true for preachers, it's true for the people in the pew. We all need this kind of sound teaching that gives life. Uh, Paul, he says to Timothy, you, you should set before them sound doctrine, having been trained previously in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine you have followed or have been following now. Uh, feed the people of God. And part of that is going to be not only giving positive pre- presentations of what's true, but it's also going to require at times pointing out things which are false and the way those false things actually ruin people's lives and lead to malnourishment among Christians. And so he's, uh, he's going to have to not only give you the good stuff, but he's going to have to warn you away from junk food. That's what ministers are called to do. Verse 7, have nothing to do with silly, irreverent myths or old wives' tales, uh, as one translation puts it. Now look, nobody does this well for others who doesn't do this first for themselves. No one teaches well who hasn't first learned well. As John Stott says, behind the ministry of public teaching lies the discipline of private study. And that is what we are to be about. Uh, You know the name, perhaps, William Tyndale. He was uh, the man of God responsible for getting the Bible into print and helping its distribution across the English language in the very earliest days of the Reformation. Uh, he uh, He was placed in prison for his work for the gospel, He was being persecuted and facing martyrdom. He wrote a letter to the governor because he had some requests. And the letter is fascinating. Here he is. He's in prison facing martyrdom, which came very soon after he wrote the letter. And this is what the letter said. Here are my requests, he said. A warmer cap, a candle, a piece of cloth to patch my leggings, but above all, I beseech and entreat you, your clemency, to be urgent with the procurer that he may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary, that I may spend time with that in study. He's about to die, but as a minister of the gospel, he wants to study God's word, and he wants the possessions that he can get his hands on that will help him study the word of God. That's his desire, and that is to be the desire of every minister of the gospel. This is is a huge part of ministry. Think how much eating is a huge part of our days. It takes time to eat, 
time to prepare meals, time to eat meals and clean up from meals, time to digest, time for food to be transformed into muscles and bones and give health. And it takes time in the kitchen to properly prepare a meal for others. With God's grace, faithfulness and diligence here produces success in ministry. So Paul wants Timothy to be successful, so he wants him to give himself to God's word, not to man's word. Put your confidence in the word of God, Timothy. Read it, learn it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it, and preach it, Timothy. Now look, evaluating ministries in our day is typically done according to a you know, very results oriented way of evaluation and uh, with a very sort of select few kinds of results at that. People uh, sometimes think a good ministry is one in which there are large crowds or big budgets or new buildings or book deals for the pastors or, or, or a national reputation as a great communicator. But for Paul, being a good servant of Christ Jesus is largely tied to whether or not you've been faithful to guard and proclaim and practice the gospel-centered truths that you have received in God's word. Now, was Paul unconcerned? You know, is that what I'm saying? He didn't care about results? No, of course not. Paul actually believed that the truth of God was sufficient, that it was powerful and effective to bring about the positive results God wanted. He believed that if he... And his disciples, like Timothy, if they would faithfully put these things before the people, day in and day out, that they would, to borrow the language of the prophets, uh, they would not return to God void. But instead, like uh, spring rains that water the earth and produce flowers and produce, so where God's word falls, it will bear much fruit for God. This is how we get results in the kingdom of God. That's never to say that what will happen, that the results we'll get will be you know, glamorous and exciting, uh, noteworthy in the world's eyes. It may very well not be the case. You know, On one occasion, the faithful proclamation and application of God's truth might lead to revival, visible growth, and dramatic conversions of non-believers. At other times and in other contexts, that same faithful gospel ministry might result in people being stood in front of a firing squad to be killed for believing in Jesus, or buried in deep, dark prison cells to die a death in service to Jesus. And between those two extremes, of course, is where most of us live and where most churches and Christians are. So Paul says, look, Timothy... Be a good servant of Christ. Teach sound, healthy, life-giving teaching. And you'll be a good servant. Now that's the first thing. The second is this. You need to train. If you are a good servant of Jesus, you train yourself for godliness. Verses 7 and 8. Uh, verse 7, you know, don't give yourselves to these, uh, these uh, irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For all bodily training is... Uh, of some value godliness is a value in every way so Paul says look you need to train 
As an athlete trains his body, a minister is to train his soul for godliness. Oswald Sanders in his his, uh, little book on spiritual leadership says, spiritual ends can only be achieved by spiritual people using spiritual methods. That's what we're to be and do. We're to train ourselves for godliness. Now, what does he mean by godliness? What is he really talking about? Godliness might be easily translated God-wordness. It describes the inner life and heart orientation of a person. It's about the heart being oriented towards God in reverence and love, in esteem and affection for God. He mentioned back in chapter 3, verse 16, godliness. You might glance your eyes over there where he said, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. Now, what's he saying? He's talking about the mystery of godliness. And by that, he doesn't mean something that's obscure or that's a puzzle or nobody can figure out. A mystery is something that was once hidden but has now been revealed. Okay? The revelation of godliness is what, he says. Notice his language. The revelation of godliness is he. It's about Jesus, his incarnation, his crucifixion, his uh, burial and resurrection, his ascension into glory. Godliness is about Jesus, ultimately. It's a person. He was godly For us, because apart from him, we aren't. And in the first place, we get godliness from him as a gift credited to us. But we are also to train ourselves for godliness. It's both and. Here he uses the expression gymnazo or gymnasia, from which you can hear the language in it. We get the words gymnastics and gymnasium. You're to go to the spiritual gym and work out, he says. And then here he compares the physical working out with the spiritual working out. Bodily, verse 8, bodily training is of some value, he says. Godliness is of value in every way. Well, godliness is of some value. Like, for instance, just to pick something random out of thin air, so to speak. If you're on a river, say... The Illinois River. And you're coming up upon a massive tree in the river. At a bend in the river. And you just so happen to hit the very front of your canoe into that tree. And quickly the uh, oh elevated river flow dashes your canoe against the side of that. And then buries it under the tree as, as you scramble out on top of the tree for safety. Well... It can be helpful to be at least slightly physically athletic to survive such a moment as that. And then to survive the swift current as you swim downstream to safety. A measure of athleticism is of some value, even for old geezers like me and my friend who was with me. Bodily strength and stamina are of some value. It's not irrelevant, especially as people get old. It's important for us to take care of our bodies. We only get one. This is the only one you'll have, ever have. It's, it's good 
to take care of it. It's the Lord's good creation and gift to you to help you serve him in this life. That's all good. But Paul says, no matter how firm, well, in my language, no matter how firm your abs, how strong your core, how narrow your waist, how bulging your biceps, how perfect your pecs, how carved your calves, how fast your feet. In the end, aging and the grave will take it all away. It does not last beyond this grave. And don't be too upset by that. You get something far more spectacular at the resurrection. But godliness, godliness in contrast to that, has value not only for the present life, but for the life to come, Paul says. It's valuable now, and it's valuable forever. It holds promise for the present life, he says, and for the life to come. So Paul is saying to all of us, we ought to want godliness more than we want perfect health. We ought to want godliness more than a perfect body. We ought to aim at it, train ourselves for godliness in this way, more than we train our bodies. Now, where do you get this godliness? Well, Paul had just been teaching about false teachers, if you remember chapter 4, 1 to 5. And he'd been suggesting, uh, these false teachers, I should say, had been suggesting to the people of God that real godliness is gained through keeping these unbiblically commanded fasts, keeping external rites and rituals through the harsh treatment of the body, denying yourself the pleasures of the marriage bed, dying your, denying yourself the good foods that God had created for you to enjoy and receive with thanksgiving. Some people said, well, that's how you get godliness. Treat your body harshly. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch was their motto. And Paul says that's not how you gain godliness. You don't gain it by abstaining from good things God created for your enjoyment. You gain it by being united to Christ. And what, what belongs to him becomes yours in two ways, in two senses. On the one hand, it's credited to you. His godliness is substituted before God for your ungodliness. He died for the ungodly. He dies your death as punishment for your ungodliness. And you receive his godliness, his heart of reverence and affection for the Lord, where he said, here I am, O Lord, I have come to do your will as a son to a father who loves his father and always did that will. That godliness of Jesus becomes yours in Jesus. But there's more good news than just that. It's awesome. It's credited to you. It's also being worked in you as he makes you like himself. Paul says elsewhere, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are all being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are being transformed uh, by Jesus as we see him as he is. And so Paul says it's, you get it, and it's both 
active and passive. We get it as a gift and we express it in our lives. We are to train ourselves for godliness. We are to focus on him. In him is life. In him we are complete before God. In him we truly know God because all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. And in him we revere God and we grow in love and affection for God. And you can't have godliness without Jesus. But Paul makes it clear that that it's both passive and active. It's something that we depend upon God for and that we consecrate ourselves to. So that on the one hand we can say, you get it by God's grace. It's a gift. It's the work of the Holy Spirit on your behalf. And as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 13, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul in Philippians 2.13 doesn't say work for your salvation. You can't do enough to make up for all your bad. Jesus worked for your salvation, but he says work out your salvation. Express it. Live it with fear and trembling before God. For it is God who works in you. To will and to work for his good pleasure. So aim at it in reliance upon God. Grow, dear brothers and sisters, as I ought to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what a minister should be doing. He should be teaching and he should be training. And he should be toiling. That's his last thing, verses 9 and 10. If you are a good servant of Jesus, you toil, he says, waiting on God to save others. Notice the language. He begins with one of those trustworthy sayings. It's the third one in this book. Verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, all of us ought to believe and embrace the truth of this statement. Verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So Paul says we toil, we strive to this end. We labor away for everlasting spiritual well-being in the lives of not only ourselves but others. What Paul is pressing on Timothy is to ask himself the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? What motivates me to work when I get out of bed in the morning if I'm a minister of the gospel? Especially, think of Timothy's situation. He's following the Apostle Paul in ministry. No small expectations, undoubtedly, in his situation. And yet he's following the Apostle Paul into a situation where false teachers have risen up and are teaching all kinds of crazy things. So some people are going to like him because he's not the Apostle Paul. Some people are going to like him because he's contradicting them because they're lying about the truth. And so he's going to have trouble from within the church. He's certainly going to have trouble and persecution from without the church. Why do I get out of bed in the morning? Paul is saying to Timothy, why would you? What's your aim? What's your goal? How can you do it? Paul says, well, it's not because you have put your hope in yourself. Don't put your hope in your toil. 
Don't put your hope in your popularity or everybody agreeing with you in ministry or, uh, or being in a ministry that has no difficulties. or uh, not, uh, Don't put your hope in uh, preaching perfect sermons. Uh, don't put your hope in delivering those sermons with perfect eloquence. Uh, don't put your hope in the fickle hearts of your hearers. Timothy, put your hope in the living God and tell your people to put their hope in the living God. If your hope is firmly on God himself, nothing in this life can take that away. And nothing short of him can give you that kind of hope. As my old pastor put it, I think, very helpfully this way. He says, we are often in our lives looking for our hope in something else other than God. And very often it is our prayer to God that God would help us get the other thing in which we have placed our ultimate hopes. And he goes on to say to his congregation, I want to tell you, and he's saying it to you right now, I want to tell you that God will never answer that prayer of his people. When you pray, Lord, Help me to have the kind of circumstances in which I find my ultimate hope apart from you. God always says, no. (laughs) No, dear children, I love you too much for that. Because God doesn't want you to have your ultimate hope in something other than him. He wants you to have your ultimate hope in him. Ministers are always tempted to look for something else to put their hope in, in ministry. Because ministry is difficult, it's a marathon and not a sprint, it's for the long haul, and we rarely see results from our ministry, you know, in the short term. And that's why ministers are suckers for fads and programs, because we want the program to do what we don't think God is doing. We want uh, the latest strategy that somebody else came up with to build a bigger and better church. We want that because we don't want to trust God to do exactly what God wants to do with the people he's given us to serve. And it never ultimately works to put your hope in those fads and programs and strategies because God is the only source of living hope. Now look, do you know what I would do if I really in my heart of hearts, and I'm tempted to think this way all the time, and I'm a fool when I do, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. But if I really put all my hopes in me, if I thought the ministry and its success was up to my toiling and striving on your behalf, I would either quit or I would work harder. But I would only work harder probably for a very limited time because then I would get really burned out. And on top of that, I would begin to hate you for not meeting my expectations and doing what I want you to do. Listen, it's a dangerous thing when we put our hopes in ourselves, our confidence to continue toiling away in the work of teaching, in the work of ministry. Our confidence to continue in all of this has got to be in the living God. It is not a misplaced confidence. What does Paul mean here? We have to deal a little bit with just this last phrase, this last issue. What does Paul mean here when he says, uh, 
that we put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe? Well, he's not saying that God actually does save or become the Savior of every single last individual that there has ever been. Paul is not here saying that everybody goes to heaven and nobody goes to hell because God is the Savior of all people. That is not what he's saying. Paul has not suddenly become a universalist, okay, where everybody goes to heaven. Uh, We know that because Paul elsewhere teaches differently and because of what Jesus himself taught. That there are those who are saved and those who are lost. That there are those who are sheep and that there are those who are goats. And that one day at the end, Jesus will gather the sheep and the goats before him and he will divide humanity. And he will say to some, the goats, depart from me. I never knew you. But to the sheep, his people, he will say, come, welcome and enter into the joy of your master. So Paul here should not be, we we ought not pluck part of a phrase of a much longer sentence in a much bigger book and lift that out and say, well, Paul's just a universalist here and this is an argument for it. No, what Paul means is that God is the savior of all kinds of people. Not that he's the savior of every single individual without exception, but that he is the savior of all kinds of people without distinction between kinds of people. You remember why I say this in part because you remember, remember why Jesus is worshipped in Revelation chapter 5 where the, 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 the angels and the four living creatures and the elders, they bow down before Jesus and, and worship him and they say to him, worthy are you? And they say to him, uh, you have been slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth he's worshipped because not that he made a ransom for all so that all are truly and inevitably ransomed but a ransom for some out of or from among all the nations of the world so that some a multitude no man can number Some from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Some who are male or female, old or young, black or white. Some who are rich or poor, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. Some will, many, a multitude will stand before God in heaven and he is their savior. What then does Paul mean here by especially those who believe? Well, there are a number of places that's puzzled people for a long time, and some recent scholarship has demonstrated that by especially here, that little word, uh, it's used in a number of places elsewhere in the New Testament. It it, it really means something like namely, or that is. Uh, An example of that is in in chapter 5, verse 8. Just look over, chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul says to Timothy, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he's denied the faith. What, what he means is uh, he's, he's not being absurd here and saying, and nor should we be absurd, and say 
Every Christian must provide for everyone who shares their DNA as far as it is medically possible scientifically to know. No, he's saying provide for your relatives, namely, or that is your household, your family. And so likewise in our text, Paul is saying that God is the savior of all kinds of people, that is, those who believe. And so, as my friend Bebo used to tell insecure campus ministers as he pastored us on the phone after what we considered a terrible week of campus ministry, when we would freak out because one person showed up when we hoped there'd be 20, or in some cases 100 people showed up, but we really thought there were going to be 200. That was never my experience. But when those same campus ministers went home that night depressed, hanging their head, ready to quit. And their wives, for some of them, had to basically drag them out of the bed in the morning. Bebo said, what do you do? What do you do? He said, you go to bed. And you get up in the morning. And you get out of bed. And you go to work. You toil away. Because our hope is not in our efforts, but in the living God. Believe he is at work. Because he is at work, Paul tells Timothy. He saves people. And so serving him is never futile. It's never useless. It's uh, always successful in God's eyes according to God's purposes. Let me ask you as we close. Is your hope set on the living God to be your savior? There is nobody else who can give you salvation. Why would you put your hopes in anyone else? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray that it would change us, mold us, shape us, transform us as a people. Especially, I pray for myself, uh, that you would help me. Help me to be faithful and diligent to the calling that you have called me to. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.